I went to this relatively new spot that opened this past August in Kensington. It's a Korean soul food and cocktail spot called Tiger K. So it's located right on 10th Street and Tiger K offers what I would say is a modest menu of classic Korean dishes perfect for sharing and drinking. Now this is called Anju. Thing is now whenever I think of the word Anju, I think of Roy Oh in his iconic Calgary restaurant. So shout out and big props to Roy. But anyways, we're talking about Tiger K. Um, we had this uh, bosam platter, which came with sliced pork belly, spicy squid, kimchi, sliced garlic, jalapeno, samjang, and then salted baby shrimp. And it had the Napa cabbage, of course, for wrapping. It was the perfect amount of food for two people to share while drinking somek. And we got a big plate of seafood jeon, which is like a like veg and seafood that's like dredged and coated in egg and then fried. Pretty easy. Simple. It's like a big pancake. So, And then it comes with this like uh, soy sesame dipping sauce. And it was pretty tasty. I don't know. There's just something about good drinking food that I love. And there's a lot of cultures that, that have food that's like synonymous with a night out drinking, right? Like there's Anju, of course. There's Filipino Palutan, Thailand. Like there's so many countries that have like night markets. And there's always like something deep fried or fatty or super funky or like a huge stank factor. And I got a couple episodes coming up about drinking food. And I got an episode coming up about stank factor. Stank factor is the thing. And yeah, it's a necessity. It's a factor that I find is absent in a lot of food in the West. So stay tuned for those episodes. But anyways, what I do find though is that a lot of places that bring these kinds of concepts to fruition always feel like they need to elevate it. And when I say elevate, it usually means to, you know, make it fancier, of course, neater, cleaner, safer. And when a restaurant takes the task to elevate cuisine for whatever reason, I find that there's always some sort of degree of restraint that's often used. I find that dishes are made to be, of course, like I said, neat, presentable and safe. And I mean, drinking food shouldn't be like that, should it? Drinking food at its best is the epitome of what Dave Chang refers to as ugly delicious. Like it's not meant to be pretty. Like soul food usually foregoes the pageantry of being tightly wrapped and pretty and focuses on what matters, which is taste and satisfaction. That's it. Like, it doesn't mean that I didn't like Tiger K. Like, you know, I want to go and try the lunch sets because um, I saw that they have the raw marinated crab and I've never seen that anywhere before and I've never had it and I'd like to try it. Um, but what actually inspired me to go in the first place was watching a TikTok video from a food influencer. If you would have told me in 1988 that people would be obsessed with taking pictures of their food and equally obsessed with looking at other people's pictures of their food, I would have laughed and called you mental or some 80s era equivalent term that just can't be used today. But here we are in 2023. Everyone, and I mean everyone, is glued to this precious palm-sized slab of silicon and gorilla glass with access to a literal world of information at their fingertips. Now, if you told me that in the 1980s, I would say, wow, is everyone in the future super intelligent then? I'm proud to be of a time that didn't have the internet. Yes, knowledge was more of an effort to access back then when a school report often meant a trip to the public library or to your rich friend's house who had a set of Encyclopedia Britannicas. We worked harder back then for everything. There were a lot of things I could say that we're happy to say that we did back then, like ride bikes with our friends outside till the streetlights came on and drinking from the hose because you weren't allowed in the house with all your friends during the summer or playing in construction sites. Like We didn't need internet. The irony, though, is that, you know, all us Gen X folks these days, we proudly display our badge of honor via 
memes on Facebook. So amidst the treasure trove of knowledge and resources that are available on the internet, this vast universe of cyber wealth is equally rich in hours, endless hours of mindless entertainment in the form of memes, ASMR, cat videos, and yeah, pictures of food. We now carry with us at all times a window to a world specifically tailored to each of us, carefully curated via elaborate algorithms that track our every behavior, whether it be the videos we're watching, uh, our buying decisions, or the sites we visit. All these nuggets of content that capture our attention are products of corporations, small business owners, or people like you and me, in hopes that your attention will turn into some sort of engagement in the form of likes, comments, inquiries, and maybe even sales. There is no doubt that the food industry has embraced social media wholeheartedly. And with the food network and sportification of food and competitions, we see food in many different ways today, be it restaurant reviews, cooking competitions, tutorials, food travel logs, or mukbang. I'm Jay Del Coro, and on today's episode of the Aimless Cook Podcast, we're going to be talking about the world of food influencers. The history of food influencers is closely tied to the evolution of digital media and social networking platforms. As technology is involved, so too has the role of the food influencer. While the concept of food influencers may seem relatively new, it has roots in traditional media with, of course, writers and critics. Now, if you look at pre-internet, food critics, uh, food writers often played a significant role in shaping culinary trends and influencing where we eat. They would uh, review restaurants and newspapers and magazines, and of course there was always, you know, always publications with recipes for... And this type of traditional media was, of course, very influential in the way people dined and the way, you know, we, we cooked food. Now, if we go to the early 2000s with the rise of the weblog or blog... Food bloggers started sharing their culinary experiences, recipes, and restaurant reviews. Now, there's also like food websites like Chow Hound that um, also had community forums that often served as a platform for people to write about experiences and impressions. In 2004, Yelp started, which of course is the bane of many restaurant owners out there. Um, there are still folks out there that consider themselves food critics because they regularly contribute on Yelp. Now, this eventually led to the Yelp elite, which further inflated egos and senses of collective entitlement to the displeasure of entrepreneurs everywhere. This marked the beginning of like uh, the beginning of food influencers in the digital realm. And of course, this was the time when many writers started to use the new platform to to expand their reach the mid 2000s with growth of platforms like facebook and twitter and instagram it allowed food bloggers to expand their reach sharing food photos and recipes became a popular way to attract followers and it was notably at this time that roy Choi's kogi truck made its debut and kogi did something revolutionary by utilizing a new social media platform called twitter to broadcast the locations of the trucks at any given time. And this was a game changer. Now, of course, in October 2010, an iOS app launched called Instagram, and it played a pivotal role in the rise of food influencers. Instagrammers began to post photos of their food. And of course, at this time, food porn was really getting a foothold in pop culture. YouTube channels and food vlogging became popular for sharing cooking tutorials, restaurant reviews, and food challenges. Now, this is around this time, 2009, when I started on YouTube as a vlog. I had no idea what I was doing. And of course, there was no, you know, I had no um, intention to, to grow it the way it grew, but it did. Yeah, I posted food vlogs and recipes that I was learning at the restaurant and cooking um, techniques. 
And of course, at this time too, in 2010, Epic Mealtime debuted. Influential figures emerged. And this was around the time when、um, celebrities also started, you know, from 2010 on, like Jamie Oliver. We started seeing Jamie Oliver on YouTube as well. Also, at this time, food influencers started collaborating with brands and restaurants and food companies, leading to further monetization opportunities. Currently, when you're on YouTube and you're a partner, you have a share in ad revenue. And it's not bad, depending on the type of following you have and you know, watch hours and all that stuff. But you know, diversifying your income and bringing in things like partnerships, sponsorships with、um, brands is a huge thing. And it is a common thing now. Now, of course, around this time, too, I was mentioning that people like Jamie Oliver、uh, were going on here, like big. Um, big celebrities who were in traditional media and vice versa, because a lot of food influencers from YouTube made the move to television and stuff too, like Laura in the Kitchen, like Laura Vital. She did some TV. But I'm thinking of people that have gone from traditional media to YouTube as well. Like, of course, there's like Gordon Ramsay, and I remember Marco Pierre White, of all people. He did.、Uh, Is kind of cringe because Marco Pierre White did a Knorr partnership on YouTube. And I think you can still see some of the videos on there now, but you're talking about like one of the youngest chefs to get three Michelin stars telling you that the best steak is marinated with a Knorr stock cube. Yeah. <laughs> Take that for what it's worth. Now, of course, today, food influencers are increasingly exploring and broadening their horizons, especially with like global cuisines. You're gonna see a lot of food travel logs nowadays. And, you know, I do watch a lot of food travel logs like Mark Wiens, Food Ranger. Like, there's so many. There's so many out there. But Mark Wiens is probably one of the most notable and、uh, sharing their diverse culinary experiences. If you ever watch Mark Weens, you know what the Weens lean is. Whenever he tries a bite of food and does that one lean over to, <laughs> to the right or left, whatever it is. Overall, I think that being a good influencer, a good influencer is, is beneficial for the industry as a whole. And I said good food influencer. And I find that. Being skilled in something, be it food writing or making food video content, is something that takes effort, thought, creativity, and intelligence to put out a piece in whatever form that one can be proud of, but more importantly, be appreciated for the value that it brings to the space. And it's in saying that that I believe that using the term content for anything that is the product of good, honest creativity and mindfulness is. Degrading to anyone who takes their work seriously. I mean, I write essays, I make cooking videos, I produce podcasts. I don't want to commodify my work by calling it content. It's not mere filler for someone's scrolling addiction. Now, I get it that these platforms are where people's eyes are these days and ears, but we're, we're talking about people's time. We're talking about my time, my money. And as they say, you know, if time is money, Then you have to make good, meaningful work. At its essence, it would be safe to say that the term influencer is synonymous with anyone that creates for the purpose of gathering engagement on social media with the intention that the viewer will ultimately make a buying decision, which will in turn benefit the creator, right? Now, in days of pre internet, a food writer or critic would write a review or column that he would get paid for that would get published in a newspaper or magazine. And the equivalent of that engagement would come in the form of subscriptions or sales, a boom in the restaurant's business, or a letter to the editor. So, Chanery Thatch is an ambassador for Calgary Tourism. A contributor for Avenue Magazine and a social media manager for some of the most impressive Instagram and TikTok profiles out there, including the Maven Group and their three restaurants, Maven, Brecky Cafe, and Sammy Cafe. Am I right? Correct, correct. 
Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. This is exciting. You're my very first guest ever. Yes. <laughs> so we've known each other in the social space for a few years now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I remember discovering your work via your blog, Hungry Gnome, which we'll include a link to in the show notes. And uh, before this interview, I wanted to get to know you a little bit better. And by that, I was doing a little digging, of course. And by digging, I meant that I just kind of read your origin story on your Ask for Chan Instagram profile. So you you graduated from George Brown Culinary School. Correct. And you started working at Fairmont Properties across the country? Mm-hmm, correct. So it was like, were you cooking or was it like a hospitality kind of? I started course? dishwashing. I was a steward and I was in the dish pit at the Royal York crazy i know it's it's kind of crazy and my manager there at the time had a spent a summer at chateau lake louise so when i graduated college at george brown i applied for a job at lake louise not really thinking anything of it at the chateau lake louise and then when i got the property my manager was like yep we'll transfer you right away so i had an internal transfer from the royal york to the chateau and at the chateau i was cooking wow crazy I always say, like, to anyone who wants to go into this industry, and people will always ask if they should go to culinary school, and I'll usually say, go go work as a dishwasher first, because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. a lot of my best cooks, you can tell, have been dishwashers, because there's always, like, a, yeah, there's always, like, a attention to detail, there's always, like, they have a system in place, they have things you know, set up in a certain way. Like when I was, when I, I still dishwash now because for one reason, mainly because I like doing things right. And it's usually when you have to, you want to do things right, you do it yourself. So there's always like a system, a way I want to set up the sink and stuff. But anyways. (laughs) No, I agree. So you, if you start off dishwashing, you've done, I like technically the worst job in the kitchen. So any other job above that is just, it gets better and better is what I always thought of it as. And it does train you to be in the worst situations, the most stressful situations. Yeah. Yeah. So in 2012, you started your blog, Hungry Gnome, which is not really active now, you said? She's retired. (laughs) And at the time, yeah, you started contributing for publications in Hamilton? Mm-hmm. I actually started yeah, a blog so because I got laid off. It was kind of out of a fun hobby, you know, when you're unemployed. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. It, it seems like those kinds of endeavors and projects start from a low place. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you, you kind of think of it and then it's like, oh, there's only one way this can go. If I just invest my time and and my passion into this. So I guess from there, you started in restaurant marketing in 2014. Mm -hmm. And you worked for an agency? Yeah. It's funny. I actually didn't even apply for the job. I had applied for a completely separate job. It was like an admin receptionist job. And the hiring manager for that receptionist job was a fan of my blog. She read my blog and the owner of that business that she was hiring for owned a marketing agency. And she had said, I'm not gonna interview for this receptionist job, but can I pass your resume to my boss who also owns a marketing agency? And I said, I don't have any marketing experience. And she said, I read your blog. You sell me restaurants every single week. Oh. <laughs> She's like, I know you can be a marketer. So that's how it happened. She passed my resume on to her boss. I sat down and met with, you know, the marketing team. And I was honest, I went, I don't, I didn't go to university. I dropped out of university. I don't have a background in this. And they were pretty much like, you have the skills, everything else we can teach you. So that was my first marketing job with the agency. Wow. That's crazy. The universe just works in beautiful ways. It does. Definitely. And it's, Good, because I'm seeing, like, through your timeline here, 
Earlier in the episode, I was talking about kind of the evolution of how technology and social media platforms also, you know, evolved the role of a food influencer. And that's what we're, what we're talking about today. And um, would you consider yourself a food influencer? Uh, yeah, yes. Like the term is very ubiquitous. It is, yeah. And I hesitate using that term, but when I really think about what I do and like not just how I get paid, but how I spend my time on the internet, I do influence people to eat at food businesses. And I think that this is where the rift I alluded to earlier begins because I see a lot of uh, people that do this, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But I'm looking at you and I'm seeing a person with a definite passion for food who has built a solid foundation, skills and experience, not just in cooking and working in the industry, but in many aspects of the business. And I think that's a, you know, like an essential skill set needed to effectively market a restaurant. And I like, that's incredible. Thank you. When you like went independent and started to work for yourself, was it something that was like a really scary decision for you? Yeah, it was terrifying. I never wanted to be an entrepreneur. I never thought I would ever open my own business. But the that marketing agency that I worked with in Hamilton, I got to the point where I kind of had outgrown that role. And she had said, you know, do this on your own, like open up your own. You can take the restaurants that came here just for you. And she really nurtured and like grew this spirit in me. She set me up with everything I needed to do to start my own pretty much marketing agency. She said, if any of the restaurants that are with us want to go with you, you already have all the clients that you need. And I kind of just went in. Wow. So basically you had a good mentor. She was incredible. She always taught me that like collaboration is way better than competition. And if she can share her knowledge with somebody else, then that just gives her room to gain more knowledge. Like that's how she always ran her agency. And that's how Suzanne from The Generator, that's how she always taught me. Like, that's why I share everything. You ask me what my rates are. You ask me how to get sponsored posts. Like I've always shared what I've known about influencing with other influencers because she was the one who taught me. Like if you share your knowledge, that just gives you room to take on more knowledge. I remember back in the day, like taking that leap of faith And I had talked to everyone. It was almost like I was in this analysis kind of phase. And it's scary. It's like anxiety inducing, right? 100%, because you never know. Like I have always been like a corporate girl. You know, after I worked in the kitchens at the Fairmont, I worked in the offices and I was a food and beverage manager for like, you know, the Hilton, the Fairmont. I was used to working, you know, a steady job with a steady income. I never thought I would ever be an entrepreneur. And then it kind of just fell into place. I've been doing this five years now and I don't know if I can go back to being... That is a common thing I hear too. Most people who do take that leap are like, never look back. You can, even though it's a struggle and I work more than I ever did before and yes. you can't turn off your brain, especially with a business like mine. If I don't work, I don't make an income. There is no you know, machine behind me that starts turning and invoicing clients. It all comes from me. So that's the stress there, but it's, there's, you enjoy it. I enjoy it. I enjoy the pain. (laughs) (laughs) I tell this to my kid who's in his early twenties now. And of course he has these entrepreneurial dreams to, to do a restaurant of his own one day. And I tell him like, of all of the things, like, you know, a lot of young kids will say, I don't have... I don't have money. I don't have assets. I don't have anything to, to fund a restaurant or anything. I'm like, you don't need all that. Your most important asset is your time. You're like 20. You're supposed to screw up now. Yeah. And you're supposed to work your butt off. Do it now while your body can handle it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I remember like, I'm an older guy. And when I decided to start a restaurant, I was like already 40 and it was like, there's a lot of things that you take into consideration. You're talking it over with your wife, you're talking with your family. You kind of think of every kind of contingency plan in case you made the wrong decision. 
right? Because you have a mortgage, you have children to take care of. Like, there's a lot of stuff, and it can be burdensome. It can be a burdensome decision. But when you're young, I mean, like, you don't have any of that stuff. Like, when you're young, it's like, do it, make the risk, take the leap. Like, worst case scenario, you go back and you live with your parents. <laughs> right? Well, look, he's upstairs right now. <laughs> Why not? I mean, this is why you should take your risks. You know, you don't have a mortgage. You're not, you don't have any other mouths to feed. Like I get so many young marketing, marketing students who ask me like, how do I do this? And what should I do this? And I'm like, just go do it. What's the worst that could happen? You go get a job at McDonald's because it fails or you go and move in with your parents again, or you, you know, go back to school. Like it's young now, make those risks. We were talking earlier about influencers, how a ubiquitous term that is. And I see a lot of people, I'm not going to, I'm not going to out anybody in particular, because I mean, you see it every day. There's so many people out there. And from a restaurant point of view, one of the biggest criticisms I have about certain food influencers is that a lot of the posts that are put out there are fluff. Would you agree? 100% I agree. And I like we said earlier, that's why I'm a retired food blogger because I get so fed up with the industry sometimes. I'm like, I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to be part of this industry. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, you can post food porn. You can post the cheese pulls much as you want. And, I mean, it's for your own interest or your hobby. That's great. But then, like, I mean, you start to gain this huge following or whatever, right? It's great. But then you start saying you're a marketer. It's kind of a different thing. Yep. And once I think once uh, you start taking money from other small businesses, then that's different. That changes things. Yeah. Definitely. Let's take, for example, when I see an influencer who's doing their own thing, whatever, and they do some hosted event. Now, if you don't know what that is, it's basically to the listeners is um, restaurants will basically feed influencer and their friends or whatever for free. And I mean, that's a lot of work. It's a lot of money. And a lot of times what I see is like, they'll put a post up about, you know, how awesome they are and eating all this spread of food. And my thought is, and my criticism is, what form of metrics is there to gauge the impact of that post for my business? Do you find that too? Like 100%. I think I have the perspective of a marketer who hosts hosted events. And then I have the perspective of an influencer who goes to these events. And I think as a marketer, as a business, you have to understand that not all influencers have influences. So as a business, you have to realize who you're working with and why you are working with them. Like, are you working with this person because they create good content and you just need content for your business? Are you working with this person because they will influence your audience? Does this person even have the same audience as your business? Or are you working with this influencer simply to start a relationship for some partnership down the road? Like, it's just as much the business responsibility to figure out how they can use this influencer as it is for the influencer to decide whether this partnership is good for their audience and their brand. Like I think businesses make the mistake of assuming that every influencer has influence. That is a great point. <laughs> I like that. Because sometimes I'll work with an influencer and I know they don't have any influence. I know no one cares about their opinion and I know they don't have an opinion but they take really good content and I will use that content for my clients the way I want to use it to sell my brands and my product, you know, content that I don't have the time to produce myself. I can feed them a meal or I can send them a product and they'll produce that content for me versus another. So, so at that point, it just becomes kind of like hiring a, a photographer to do stock. For 100%. That's exactly it. Now okay. I'm just hiring a content creator or, you know, the, I think hot term right now is like a UGC creator, a user generated content creator. Like you oh. don't have a voice, you don't have an audience, but you make a nice, you make a really nice reel or you take a really pretty picture 
and that takes something off my plate. I don't have to create that reel for my client anymore. You've done it already. And there's some validity in that, yes. And sometimes there's, you know, influencers where 100%, they share the same audience as me. I know they're going to influence. And I've seen it. I have invited influencers out to my restaurants and they'll post about a dish. And the next day that dish is like flying off of out of the kitchen. Everyone wants to order that dish. Like my kitchen team always knows they're at, they'll be sitting at a restaurant in the kitchen making a dish. And all of a sudden one dish just keeps flying out of the kitchen. 100% they'll pull up Instagram and they'll be like, Chan just posted that dish. So sometimes I'll tell them, hey, I'm going to feature this dish this week. So please, you know, prep a little bit extra. But they've told me, they're like, yeah, we know you posted that picture because it's all everyone was ordering the past two days. So there is some, there is clout to social media marketing and influencers. You just have to know which one's good for you. And I've seen some really ugly ones too. Like I've seen the ones that like uh, approach restaurants and then they'll ask for free stuff in exchange for a good review. And then like when they don't get what they want or something goes sour, they'll just bash a restaurant. That's such bad ethics. I feel like in any other industry, you could not you could not get away with that in any other industry. Imagine me going to my family doctor and being like, you didn't give me the prescription I wanted, so now I'm going to tell everyone to take away your medical license. <laughs> yeah, precisely, yeah. You wouldn't do that anywhere else. I think as influencers, sometimes there is that entitlement of like, I deserve this because I have an X number of followers. But then it gets into like, my big thing is influencers that fake their engagement and fake their followers and then try to get what they can out of businesses. Because I think that's highly unethical. Because a lot of profiles now can buy followers. Like you could buy followers, 100%, right? And I've caught, I've had tons of Calgary influencers message us and ask for a free meal or like a free night out. And the second I go look up their back end metrics, it's like this following is fake. Like, don't you think that's unethical to promise me, you know, a $50,000 following when really your following is nine, 9,000, 10,000, you know, it's bad on you to tell a business that I can get you these eyeballs and you can't. And then now you can buy engagement, you can buy likes, you can completely fake wow. your entire following because people see the glory. People see the, you know, how amazing it is to eat at free restaurants and go to these events. And like, they think it's just, it's so much fun. And I can just, you know, pay for fake views or pay for fake followers and get the same clout, the same glory. Like I wanted to bring up the ugly part of this because I wanted to give a chance more for restaurant owners to see that there is a bright side. There is a positive side to this. There are many like really good and impactful things that we can do for our businesses. And it's with the parting of those kind of dark clouds that you come in as a ray of sunshine in the form of my guest, my very first guest. <laughs> <laughs> so I see that when a restaurant builds and maintains their own Instagram page, for example, and they work hard to produce their own content using creativity to drive engagement. It's that those efforts are much more measurable and impactful. Like I've done this with my restaurant and I'm no expert in, in, in marketing, but I've done the basics. And then like what I've learned from making YouTube videos, I know you have to be consistent. I know you have to be on brand. And like there are many creative ways that you can use posts so you can use videos and reels and whatever to to make a solid online presence and uh i can if i can give any re any restaurant advice it would be you know the basics just get your ass on social media because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. it's free something is better right? than nothing exactly so, I mean, you know, learn some tips as well to make good, engaging posts and just make posts mm -hmm. is what I say. That's what I did. And like, I mean, we can do like you and me, Chan, we can make a whole episode just on social media marketing. Because I know like just from looking at your Ask for Chan uh, profile, which we'll add to the show notes, that's your that's your um, marketing arm, Ask for Chan. Yeah. There's like some really good guides just in, you know, like right on their, your first page. 
Like there was a thing about guides that I was looking at that I thought was pretty cool. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And I mean, it's just like a good way to showcase your skills for sure. And like, I mean, there's tips out there from people like Chan. And uh, so I'll tell you a story. I was just out and about and I met this owner of a food truck who does like burgers. And she recently moved into this permanent space, which is a little out of the way. But she makes good burgers. She had a word. She uses the freshest ingredients, no compromises. And overall, she has a solid product that can compete with some of the best burgers in the city. And basically, she wanted me to write a review about her food. And I will say, well, you're kind of asking me to do a review. I'm not going to. Like, I'll come in and buy food and stuff, and then if it's something that I can write about, I'll, yeah, I'll write about it for sure. But, I mean, like, these are people, like she said, she's she knows nothing about social media. Like, she has a Facebook page, she has an Instagram, but, like, the content of it is, like, kind of everywhere, right? And then, like, there's not even a menu on their profile. Mm. So there's some random pics of food, blah, blah, blah. And I just kind of see. And like you see a lot of kind of restaurants in this situation. And a lot of the times it's a matter of like the owner is like way over their head, depending on like the amount of work that they're doing or the pressure that they're in. And uh, they just don't have time to do content like that. So I would, my question for you would be, in your opinion, what would you recommend to a business in that kind of scenario? Are there fairly simple ways for a business to have a social media presence and voice when they have like limited technological savvy? My thing, like I always tell my clients and I always tell anybody, I mean, I, when I had my residency at the library this year, I met with so many small business owners that had the same problem. They're entrepreneurs and now they have to be, you know, strong in the industry that they're in and then they have to be marketers now my thing was always like pick one platform and be consistent you don't have to be good you don't have to even be like stunning the content doesn't have to be amazing it just has to be consistent that's like the first step because everyone feels like they have to be perfect before they do anything so many entrepreneurs are like no i have to hire a photographer or I have to have a perfect menu designed, or I have to have a perfect studio, or you know, I have to have perfect branding before I start XYZ, before I start marketing myself. And I always say like, it, it's in tandem. It's not one after the other. Like start somewhere and just start posting and then start working on being good at it. You don't just, I always say, you don't just wake up one morning and join the NBA, you learn how to dribble. You learn the sport, you learn the rules of the sport, you learn how to shoot, and then you do all those things simultaneously and you get better and better and better, and then you join the NBA. You don't just wake up one morning and just, you know, do it. <laughs> Would you say that if you were a business owner and you have a certain demographic, like a target demographic, would you say that there are platforms that are more suited to that? than another like if someone was saying selling burgers or something or somewhere for a younger demographic should they be going for tiktok should they be going for instagram i think now with social media marketing like everybody is on social media the majority of people you meet are on social media whether they're i mean like my best friend who's 60 is on TikTok and my, you know, staff who's like 23 years old, they're also on TikTok. Even if you're not on those platforms, people are sending you content from those platforms. So I always say like pick a platform that you're comfortable using and be there. Be there for your audience because I rather have a business be on a platform they're consistent in than be on all of them and not be consistent on it or think that they have to do all of them poorly instead of just do one of them really well. Now, would you say that for a business that wants to, or that has a budget for marketing is the entry 
for hiring someone like you? Is it high? Like, is it adjustable depending on the needs? It depends on your needs. Like, not, I feel like at not, it's like with any business decision, you know, you have to know when to bring in a third party team member. You know, like just the way you have to know when to start hiring someone, you know, to go from a solopreneur to your first employee. You have to think about, will this employee take enough things off my plate that I can make, that I have more time to make more money? So I think if you're looking to hire a marketer, it has to be the right time in your business when you can afford to pay a good marketer to do what you need to do for your brand so that you can go off and make more money. Yeah, it's all about (laughs) that. It's just a matter of like delegating those kind of tasks and, and freeing up more of your time to do what you what you do best and then having someone who knows what they're doing to and trusting them like i find from an entrepreneur perspective it was hard to bring on my first employee or my first staff member and then to trust them to do a job that i've been so used to doing and my biggest hurdle was realizing that just because they didn't do it the way i would have done it doesn't mean they did it incorrectly like that was the biggest thing for me and i have a lot of business owners who bring me in as well They've hired me on as a marketer, but they're still telling me what to do. They're still telling me how to post on Instagram, what pictures to take. And I always say, like, you do it then. (laughs) I'm very specific. It's like, okay, you do it. Tell me how well you've marketed your business now that you've hired a marketer. (laughs) Because it's tough to let go. It's tough to let go of that control. Every entrepreneur, I think, has that. I think that's why a lot of my clients right now are bigger brands, because for them, I'm usually not their first, you know, staff member that they bring on. So it's kind of more established brands. It's brands that already have like backing behind them. But I mean, I still work with this tiny little restaurant back in Hamilton. They and the entire family works there. And I've worked with them for the past four years because they've they trust me and they've invested in marketing for their business and they it's paid off for them. They're kind of like this is perfect. You know, I'm the first person they've ever hired that wasn't a blood relative. (laughs) (laughs) You just have to trust whoever you bring in, right? Definitely, definitely. (laughs) If I was going to ask you a hot take. Okay. I'll say one word. Yelp. (gasps) I knew it. I have a lot of history with Yelp. I mean, back in the day, if you, I'm, you'll know, I know you'll know. Do you remember, like, back in the day, it was Urban Spoon and it was Yelp? Urban Spoon and Yelp, yes. Do you remember Urban Spoon? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I was, I this is, like, a fun fact I, I don't think I've shared. I was Hamilton, Ontario's first ever Yelp Elite member. Oh, my. I don't, do you remember, back in the day, Yelp used to make, if you were really active on Yelp, they would make you an Elite member. And they were the first ones doing hosted events they would bring us out to restaurants and host us give us free meals like those are my first events and back then because I they had told me like you are Hamilton's first Yelp Elite member we don't have restaurants in Hamilton yet that will host you but we can host you in Toronto in Mississauga like in all other cities so they would bring me out to all these other restaurants and I would be hosted by them and as an influencer, I loved it. Of course, it was amazing. And Urban Spoon, the same thing. Urban Spoon would rank the top 10 biggest blogs in your area. And my goal my first year was to be on that top 10 list. And, you know, I got it. It was great. And I loved those platforms. And then when I started doing marketing for restaurants, I fucking hated them. Yeah, I'll tell you a little uh, confession. Okay. 2012. Mm-hmm. I was also a Yelp elite. <laughs> it's so it's so much fun. It is. We had a really good community leader here in Calgary, Wendy Peters at the time. Because back then restaurants kind weren't of doing hosting. Her own thing. Yelp was hosting. Yeah. Like I mean, there was like very good intentions with that community at the time. And sadly, what I think is that over time, people just started to get more and more kind of entitled, mm-hmm. which led to some really kind of ugly expectations when people went to events and stuff. And like, I remember the first year I was in a, 
like, you know, I had a business and stuff and we were doing night markets and things like that, that we'd always, you know, we get Yelp elites who would come in first and they want it, you know, they want everything. And I don't know, it was just like really put a bad taste in my mouth. And I was, I felt really terrible about it. <laughs> but, as, a, as like, when you're inside the circle, you're like, this is amazing. This is so awesome. They're just stroking my ego. And then from a business perspective, it's, it was like, I hated it. I knew as a marketer, mm-hmm. they would call and they would hound us to like, you know, sign up for things. And like, sometimes, you know, all of a sudden, if you had a bad call with a sales guy, all your bad reviews would be top of the list. Like, I don't think yes. it's like that anymore. Like they're not as aggressive for restaurants to be as aggressive on that platform anymore. But there was a phase where, yeah, things got really like dirty and it was really bad for for all of us. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'm kind of like, I'm kind of glad at the same time that people are starting to see how ugly that is. Like a lot of people don't really have much respect for Yelp now, especially with that whole bad review thing. Yeah, 100%. I think that's why people trust Google reviews now. And that's why businesses rely so heavily on Google reviews, because there's no way to sway it. There's no salesperson calling restaurants to buy ads. Yes. There's no like elite group of foodies that, you know, go out and do reviews. And they're very strict. Like if they find out that you, you know, bribed your guests to start doing reviews, or if you're offering free things, like they're very strict about making sure it's as honest as possible. I think, I don't think the general public realizes how important Google reviews are to a business, not just as a review, but how how they're ranked on SEO, how they're ranked on Google. Like those things are so valuable to a business. Yeah, definitely. So I guess my next question would be for a restaurant owner that wants to work with an influencer, what are the kinds of things that they should be looking for in order to make sure they're making a good choice in, in working with an influencer? I always tell people if that influencer has influenced you in some way then they're doing their job then that is the right one for you if something that they've done has resonated with you as a person and not as a business owner then they've influenced you so work with them you know and treat them like as human beings create relationships with them talk to them engage with them as you would any guest that comes through your business. Now, would you say that like, uh, let's say like if an influencer came to a restaurant and, and, and said, basically, I have 50,000 followers and I do this, please feed me for free. <laughs> Red flag? Yeah, we've actually, you know what? It's so cringy, but we've actually had influencers come to our restaurants and say like, oh, I can shoot a video. I have x number of followers and my team is always like okay what can i get you (laughs) because they they don't like at at the restaurant like what do you what that doesn't mean anything you have fifty thousand followers but are they fifty thousand followers that like you know hockey because i'm a hockey business do they like ramen because i sell ramen like there's so much more than just i have this many followers give me free things I always say, like, I'd rather have 100 people in the room that love, love ramen. I will pay to have that audience if I'm a ramen business than to be in front of 50,000 people who I don't know if they like ramen or not. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. Maybe they've never had ramen. Maybe they all have a gluten allergy and no one eats ramen. But if you guarantee 100 people that eat ramen, 100%, I want that audience more than I want 50,000 people. And that's where I talked about before in the beginning of the episode, like through the evolution of influencers, there are a lot of now that have been really niched out. So you're going to have a lot of sub, uh, ones that are doing vegan content or, you know, plant-based or gluten-free. And I think with those, you have a lot of accounts that might be smaller in terms of followers, but very dedicated to, to one thing. Yep. And I find that like the community, like I currently, I chef at a restaurant that's fully plant-based and I find that that community is so tight and especially like, and I've been using like, uh, Facebook groups 
to market ourselves and to just kind of tell everybody what's going on and stuff. And it's building a community through little places like that that I find is very engaging because a lot of that interaction is very organic. It's very real, right? It's not just a matter of someone just hitting a thumbs up on your post or whatever. Yeah. You create relationships. I think people, when it comes down to it, you have to think you're creating relationships. Like I always manage my brands as if I'm your best friend. Like you're not talking to a business that sells eggs. You're not talking to a business that sells hockey gear. You're talking to your best friend who loves hockey, your best friend who is a chef, you know, like they have to, your audience has to feel like you're a part of their community. Not that you're, you know, McDonald's or Burger King down the street, like their loyalty is to you. Yes. Perfect. Cause it is in a in essence, a people business in its community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially with restaurants and hospitality, like you have to treat with social media and with restaurant marketing, you are the last line. Like I, when people go home, that's your chance to touch the table. Like as a server, you always have the rule, like, you know, you touch the table so many times with a guest or my rule is always after, you know, four bites or like four minutes, you go and you touch the table. Now with social media marketing, you get to touch that table when they're at home. And that's the opportunity to create that relationship it just extends from your restaurant to their home now. Like you have to treat people the way you would treat them at your restaurant, sitting at the table, whether they're at home on or at your desk. And I think that's the thing that a lot of people who say they're not technically savvy forget. That is just really an extension of, of saying, hi, how's it going? How's the food? Yeah. It's just a matter of just sending a quick DM or, you know, whatever, just a comment on whatever they took a picture of and say, that, yeah, exactly. Especially like I find with my restaurant clients, they might not have the courage to tell a server like, I didn't really like this dish. But if I DM them and they say, you know what, I didn't really like this dish. It was really salty today and I didn't enjoy it. But you guys are so busy. I don't want to say anything. So that's my chance to rectify that situation. But also tell my team like, hey, maybe we trained someone new on pants today and they oversalted everything that got sent out. I think I find that like it's one of the things that kind of bugs me sometimes as a as a restaurant owner is that on the diner side a lot of customers will be they'll go to social media and things like google review first before addressing or you know addressing concerns in person at at the place you know right with someone who can do something right away. And that's something that I think with the evolution of technology has kind of gone to the the back burner, right? That's my biggest pet peeve. Like ever since Mm -hmm. I've been, you know, a blogger or an influencer, my rule has always been like, if I don't have the balls to say it to your face, I'm not going to say it in a blog post and I'm not going to say it online. And I've, that's gotten me in trouble a couple of times because I will tell a server or a chef or a restaurant owner, like what I thought of their food, but I never want them to be blindsided when I say it in a blog post. Like you've already heard this feedback from me. So now when I say it, it doesn't come off as a shock or it doesn't come off as she, that came out of nowhere, you know? And it's fair. Like, I mean, there is always the opportunity on the business owner's part to, to make it right. Yeah. Like we're in the industry of hospitality. Yes, exactly. So Chan, if anybody wants to find you and they want to ask for Chan, what are your socials? How can they get a hold of you? They can mainly find me on my Instagram at Chanry Thatch. And then my agency has its own Instagram at ask for Chan. You can pretty much send me a DM or send me an email. Hello at askforchan.com. I'm pretty, yeah. You open for like little questions once in a while. Always, 100%. If someone has a social media question. Yeah. Always. And if I share a lot of social tips on my feed, because I find I do have a lot of business owners who follow me. I have a lot of influencers who follow me. And if I'm learning something new, I'm going to share that knowledge because it just makes everyone else better. I think if I'm learning, especially with what Instagram is doing right now, they're releasing guides, threads, 
every single day is a new update. So we, it's like, we all got to learn together. <laughs> Can I ask you some TikTok questions? Yeah. While we're here. For sure. Shoot. How important is it to use trending sounds? On TikTok or on Instagram? On in, Oh, sorry. On TikTok. On TikTok? It is very important to have it be a part of your strategy, but not your entire strategy. So there okay. should be some things that are trending audio and then the rest it doesn't have to. It's like when you write a menu, you know, there are hero dishes that are going to get people through the door. And then there yes. are the dishes that people stay for. Like this is your specialty. This is what you love to do. You're beating to your own drum. You don't have to use trending audio. But to get people to your door, that's the trending audio. Thank you for all of that wonderful advice awesome. and your thoughts on everything. Do you have time for a quick fire? Yeah, okay. Shoot. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You ready? Yep. Best banh mi in YYC. Oh, my God. Saigon Deli, 100%. The cold cuts. Yes. Extra pate, extra mayo, extra too. chili. That's that's my order. <laughs> Favorite morning pastry with a coffee. Butter Block does this pastry. It's a croissant and they crack an egg in it and they bake it. And for some reason, they still manage to keep the egg runny. Really? Yeah. Butter uh, and Butter Block's dough is like wonderful. Their croissants are great, but it's I, they have a name for it, like a brekkie or a croissant something like that it's a breakfast croissant with an egg it's so good butter block this is only the second one and you've already influenced me to go to butter block now i already knew about the saigon deli thing like yeah i love saigon deli i love fo rang dong too oh, okay 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 which brings me to my next one your favorite asian noodle soup that is not Ramen. You know what? Ramen doesn't have my heart. I never crave ramen. My favorite Asian noodle soup. Okay. If I'm making it at home, then my mom's mankan is the best. She makes her own noodles. She literally wraps the dough around a bottle, holds the bottle over the flaming stock pot and just slices it and drops noodles like that. What? So if I'm making it at home, she her noodles, the best. If I'm eating out at a restaurant... Then I'm a classic, like, pho girly. The mm -hmm. beef rib pho from Pho de Ba is the closest pho I can get to my mom's pho. So I always have that. I like pho in the morning. Yeah, me too. For breakfast. When mm -hmm. you go to Vietnam, it's you go out there, you sit in the sun. Yeah. After you get up, you have a coffee. And that's literally what you have, a bowl of pho. That's the eggs. I like rang dong. Like, I get my hair cut next door. And uh, I'll go to Pha Rang Dong, and it's so good. I've, I wrote a piece about it. I wrote actually a, like a, a kind of ode to Pha. And one of the things I like doing is when I go there in the morning is like, there's that banter, all the uncles talking. And it's just so good to just like dip into that bowl. And it's the first thing. And it's like just, I'm a purist, so I don't like to put any anything in the broth. I just like to have it pure. And it's just so good. <laughs> oh, I love that. We'll have to. I've never been, so I'll have to go check it out. <laughs> Definitely. You've influenced me. Oh, <laughs> I've influenced you. Okay, cool. Your usual bubble tea order. Mm. It depends. So if I go to Tea Moon, I always get their taro cloud. They have some of the best bubble tea recipes, I think, in the city. You never have to adjust the sweetness, the ice, anything. You order just the way it is. Do you like it sweet? No, I'm a diabetic, so I always like it like 50% sugar. But with them, I never oh, me adjust. Too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, are you for the cheese foam? Only at Tea Moon. Everywhere else, I always get like a lychee, you know, black tea with lychee boba or like that's it. Yeah, whatever lychee they have is what I get. I'm such a basic girl. No imagination. <laughs> no, I I feel you. You know, and that's I've been I getting like... that since I was like 14. 
I've yeah? never got, okay. you know, it's just so, you get it once and you get it all the time. Okay, so my last two. Okay. Best date night spot in YYC. Best date night spot. I love to obviously go to, okay, go to, I like to jump from different places. So start off by going to a restaurant, either like it's an omakase or it's something casual like Bridget Bar or, you know, Bencho, like an izakaya, something fun that's not just, you know, burgers and fries or if even if even if it's burgers and fries that you like start off with a good dinner and then i always finish like me and my husband always finish our night at paper lantern oh it doesn't matter like where we've been what we do we always if it's a good date night we're at paper lantern at like 10 p.m 11 p.m i don't even drink i'm not a drinker but i go and they make me wonderful mocktails they make my husband the best cocktails and we just kind of snack their menu is small enough that even if I've had dinner, I can still graze on something. And the atmosphere is cool. The space is relaxed. Staff is always really good. And then now we've added mama desserts to the mix. So mm-hmm. we'll go to mama desserts, get a cheese coin or a tofu dessert or like a mango mochi. And then that's it. Like we we like to jump. We People bar hop, but I like restaurant hop. You know, I like to have mm. three different things. Maybe I'm in Italy and then I'm in Japan and I finish the night in Taiwan. Like that's a good date for me. Oh, <laughs> do you like speaking of mama dessert? Do you remember dessert house? No. Is that like a Calgary? That was like one of the OG dessert places in Calgary. Oh, in I love that. Now it's bringing like mama dessert kind of is bringing it back. And Mama Dessert is kind of, yeah, exactly, bring it back. They are, like, their business model is wonderful. They do, they have a big enough menu that their team can execute with a small amount of labor in the back. They're open late enough to, like, midnight. It's, I'm I'm there at, like, 10 p.m. and it's still bumping. Yeah. It's such a great model. And they're constantly kind of, like, rotating just enough new menu items that if you've been there enough, you'll still go back. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now I got to go. <laughs> okay, here's the last one. Now I've asked you about date night. Mm-hmm. And it was really good. I like your version of date night. Where is the best spot in Calgary to eat a great meal alone? I I love eating by myself. I've always had lunch by myself, but I just had my first dinner by myself and I loved it. I went to an 18 course omakase at Raikou. I brought my Kindle and it was just like a spectacular evening. It was, you're sitting right at the bar, like the the chef's table at the bar. There's literally only seven other people there with you. And I was the only one there that was by myself. And the chef is right in front of you. He knew when to engage in conversation. He knew when to leave me alone. But I had, you know, a little glass of sake, some tea, and my Kindle. And I read. I would never have thought of a omakase as a solo dining. It's so it's event, one it's but... the best like treat yourself experience because you know this dinner is a little it's it's expensive. It's a little expensive, but you're spoiling yourself. And mm-hmm. the luxury of eating that type of food alone, there's no one to talk to. Like I didn't talk to anybody, so I could enjoy every single morsel. <laughs> I didn't rush myself. I wasn't like, you know, it was just such a luxurious dining experience solo. I I will definitely do that again 100%. And to be able to read in that environment on my own felt really special. Were you reading Iron Flame? <laughs> it wasn't out yet. <laughs> but I just <laughs> finished it and I'm emotionally unwell. <laughs> So that's uh, Ryoko, that one on, it's in that house, right? On... Yeah, it's in the house that never seems to survive a restaurant, but this one seems to yes. be surviving. It used to be Halo at one point, wasn't it? So many people always say it's like doomed or something, but they've, I think that restaurant group is really onto something. They brought in Chef Jun and they've got kind of three outlets, three and a half outlets now. And oh, yeah. They're yeah, their their branding is great. Their concepts are really safe, and I think with the like 
June being the new executive chef and kind of the other chefs that are kind of there as well, they're building something really strong in a really good steady pace. Yeah, I have friends who have been and have raved about it. So I can't wait. Maybe I will go alone. Do, do the <laughs> omakase and like spoil yourself. And I will bring a book. Bring Iron Flame, then we can talk about him. <laughs> so, um, Chan, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yes, it was awesome. It was very educational. And you have definitely influenced me to check out a few new spots. Good. I love your food reviews. They're so unbiased. And you give an opinion that I think a lot of foodies don't get to give. Like everybody thinks everyone loves food, but I think when you have a chef who talks about food, they analyze and they engage with that experience so differently than foodies. Thank you. Special thanks to Chanry Thatch for coming on the show. I hope that the knowledge and the tips she brought today have given you all some inspiration that will help you with your own businesses and ventures. In addition, I also hope that her perspective on the industry has given you a little insight into this world and will help you make better informed choices if you decide to work with an influencer or social media manager. Of course, as always, links to our guests are available in the show notes. Links to the restaurants that we talked about as well are also available. So be sure to rate and review the show. And if you like it, be sure to share it with your friends. It would mean the world to me. That's it for this episode. My name is Jade Del Coro, and you've been listening to the Aimless Cook Podcast. Peace. Peace.